God Conversations with Tanya Harris. So let me ask you that question. What does God sound like? <laughs> well, you know, thunder, lightning. <laughs> Mother Teresa, someone asked her, when does God speak to you? And she said, whenever he wants. So essentially the, the Bible is a, a collection of God conversations, if you like. I had a vision of a car accident, and I'm sitting on the couch thinking, why have I just seen this? How could I know if God was speaking to me? How could I know that that dream or that thought was actually just me thinking about it? I just had some bad pizza. Jesus said we'd recognize his voice and follow him. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. Godconversations.com Hi there and welcome to episode 19 of the God Conversations podcast. My name is Tanya Harris and I'm a pastor, speaker and the founder of Godconversations.com. Today is the fourth of a five-part series on that mysterious book that we call Revelation. How to understand the book of Revelation, more symbols, is our topic today. Last time we looked at the first half of Revelation, at the symbols that were there, and today we're going to focus on the second half. Well, it's a beautiful sunny day in Sydney today. I've just been home in Australia for about one week, having returned from a four to five week ministry trip in Europe. We had an amazing time there. I spent a lot of time in the churches in the Netherlands, some older new churches that I've been to before, and also in the country of Switzerland, where I spent time in a number of churches and Bible colleges there. Had an awesome time, saw God do some really wonderful things, met some new friends, and especially a big welcome to you if you are listening to the podcast from that part of the world for the first time. You know I have a soft spot for that part of the world. It's a beautiful part of the world, and it's always a privilege to minister there. So let's go back to our topic today. We're looking at the symbolism in the book of Revelation. We started looking last week at a number, about nine of the first symbols in Revelation. And we're doing this so that we can understand the scriptures, but also so that we can understand our own dreams. You see, most of the dreams that we have, whether they're natural dreams or whether they're dreams from God, are symbolic. They come to us in picture form. Some say 95% of our dreams come to us in this way. It's very rare that we get a literal dream. Most of the times, objects and animals and even people appear in our dreams and they usually are representative of something else. Let me give you a modern day example. A number of years ago, I had a dream and in the dream, I saw the house that I grew up in. And I'm standing outside in the front yard, just looking at my house. And the next thing I see is this massive snake lying on the rooftop. Well, of course, as you would imagine, I freaked out in the dream. I was horrified. There's a snake on top of my house. And my thought, my first thought was, I've just got to get rid of it. But then I realized with a great sense of relief that, you know, it's just on the rooftop. It doesn't matter. It's okay. And then as I watched, something quite sinister happened. This tiny little snake came out from under the belly of the boa constrictor and came down the side of the rooftop, down the side of the doorway, and then it slithered underneath the crack in the door. What? Get the snake out of my house, I realised. 
that now I had the potential for this baby snake to grow into this massive snake in my home and I realised it needed to be destroyed. The next scene in the dream showed a massive, like a sledgehammer, coming and crushing the head of the snake. At that time of my life, things were going really well. I felt like I was really progressing in what God was calling me to do. I felt like I was kicking some goals and moving forward. But just that week, a couple of people had said some things to me that had really gotten into my head. Just thoughts about my future and about whether God was going to come through or not. Some doubts and some fears. And I'd been thinking a little bit too much about them. They'd sort of settled in my spirit. And I realised that the dream was symbolic of a message that God wanted to send to me. Can you work out what it is? Well, of course, the, the snakes represented lies. And even though I was doing well in life, and even though that, that large snake wasn't inside my life, wasn't inside the house that I was living in my life, I'd allowed some tiny little lies to come and enter my spirit. And I'd been thinking about them. And what was the dream saying? Well, the dream was using symbols of snakes and houses to say that it's really important that you don't take on those little lies because if you, as you start to think about them, as you start to meditate on them and allow them to become a part of you, they can grow and they can become dangerous and you need to get rid of those little white lies in your house. Now, God could have said that message in another way, couldn't he? He could have used words. He could have said, stop believing the lies you're listening to. But instead, he portrays it in a story form, in a picture form, kind of like a movie that plays out in your mind. And you enter the scene and you feel what it's like to have the threat of this enormous snake invading your life and, and the horror that goes with it. And I remember waking up thinking, no, this is serious. You need to really arrest your thinking. You really need to take mastery over this and get this lie out of your mind because it has power if you give it that power. It's effective, isn't it? You know, God is a masterful communicator and we see him communicating in the same way in the book of Revelation. He's using symbols. He's using imagery. He's inviting John to participate in this celestial scene, this, this warfare scene. And as he's watching what is going on behind the curtain, John is instructed, he receives this message, okay, this is how I want you and the seven churches to respond to the situation that you find yourself in. Today we're going to look at that symbolism in Revelation chapter 12, verse 22. We looked at some of the symbols last week already. We, we talked about Jesus, how he was depicted as the, as the lamb that was slain, the one who had surrendered, the one who'd given his life for others. We, we talked about how his white robes later depicted as having been washed in blood, that the authority that came to him to open the seal was given because he laid his life down. We looked at the seven lampstands, a symbol of the seven churches that the, the message was being addressed to and the encouragement that as God's people, they were to wear robes that were white, that were, they were clothed in righteous acts and righteous living, that they were to offer incense as prayers to the heavens. We looked at some of the meaning of the numbers, sevens and sixes and twelves are found throughout the book of Revelation. 
So today we're going to look at some of the more gruesome images of the book, if you like. And um, as I said before, I think Tolkien got his inspiration for some of these warrior scenes because they're fairly full on. And then we're going to look at the symbols and the imagery that take us to the end of the story, the climax of the message of Revelation and the hope that God was trying to communicate to his people. And as we do this, what I'd like you to do is, uh, is to really... Take some time just to imagine what it would have been like to be John, to see this scene play out. Just to allow your imagination to work and see how it would have felt to be in the midst of this battle and then to see how it plays out. So let's have a look at some of these symbols that we come across coming from Revelation chapter 12 onward. As I've said before, if you can, if you're not riding your bike or jogging down the street, if you've got your Bible there, why don't you see if you can just follow along a little bit. I encourage you to do so as we take time to go through the symbols. All right, the first one, the tenth symbol that we come across in the book of Revelation, we find it in Revelation chapter 12, where we're introduced to this enormous red dragon with seven heads and seven horns, and there's seven crowns on his head. So it's a fairly unusual looking creature, but it's a ferocious one. It's a threatening, a dangerous creature. And we ask ourselves, well, who or what is the dragon? What does it represent? And if you have a look at the scene that plays out, I think you'll get a little bit of a clue. See, the dragon tries to devour the child of, of a woman. She's just given birth to a son and it's said that this son will rule with an iron scepter. You ask yourself, where have I seen that before? Of course, that's a, a reference to a messianic psalm. And we see the parallel in another story, another scene where a woman gives birth to, the son, to her son. The author actually gives the interpretation of this symbol in verse 9 of chapter 12. Let me read it to you. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. So we can see here the author actually gives us the interpretation. The dragon is Satan. Interesting, he has horns, but there's more than two there. We see clearly what the dragon represents. Also interesting to note that the enemy is often depicted as a monster in the Old Testament. We see the image of a Leviathan to, to show what he's like. Then you've got this fabulous warfare scene where the dragon attacks the woman, but she's given two eagle wings and she flies away. Then the serpent spews out a torrent of water from his mouth to swallow her up. But then it says the earth helps her out and swallows the river and the dragon gives up and goes out looking for others to destroy so again, we talked about the fact that God was showing his people what was happening behind the scenes. He was opening up the curtain to the spiritual realm and showing them that what they were facing in terms of the persecution in their life actually was a spiritual battle that was going on behind the natural realm. That the, that the players that they were facing, the emperor, the power of empire was actually at its core 
was a spiritual battle orchestrated by spiritual powers. We also see that in the case of of Jesus being born, that there was an enemy. And even though in the natural world it looked like King Herod trying to destroy Mary's son, in reality, behind the curtain, it was a spiritual battle where the dragon, the enemy, Satan, was out to devour the baby, to get rid of the child so that he could win this battle against good and evil. For the churches of Asia Minor, the message is this, that the dragon, the devil, Satan, was at the core of all their problems. The next scene we see involves the symbol of a great beast. We see this in Revelation chapter 13. The beast is a horrific-looking creature. It's also a bit odd since he has seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns, similar in some ways to the dragon. The Bible says it resembled a leopard. It has feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. So who or what is the beast? Well, let's have a look at the clues. What is the beast doing? First of all, we see it emerging from the sea. And that may not mean a lot to us today, but to ancient people, the sea always was known as the place of the underworld, if you like, where, where evil and chaos came from. So this beast arises from the sea. So we know that it's an evil being. It also has a blasphemous name on each of its heads. So it represents everything that's turned against God. People worship it rather than the true God. We see the beast waging war against God's holy people in verse 7. It says that the whole world followed the beast. They worshipped it. And we see the contrast between those who follow the lamb in verse 8 to those who follow the beast. We see the beast is incredibly powerful, seemingly invincible. It's described like this in verse 4 when it says, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Now, thankfully, we're given a bit of help with the beast later on in Revelation chapter 7. We see there a woman, a prostitute, riding the beast with seven heads and ten crowns. The seven heads we know represents seven mountains and everyone in the first century knew about these seven hills of Rome. Everyone in the first century knew exactly what this beast represented. They knew it was representative of the Roman Empire, the rule that was persecuting them, the rule that was calling on emperor worship rather than worship of the true God. So the beast is a symbol of Rome or at least of an empire that doesn't follow Christ, that doesn't acknowledge him. And we see here that the dragon gives the beast authority, that there's a source of evil behind it. Note that the empire of the world here is shown to be a very ferocious one. It resembles a leopard, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion. And for those people who'd already experienced the wrath of the empire against those Christians, for those people who had people in their church who'd already been martyred for their faith, they certainly would have felt that. We see that the beast is a deceiver in Revelation 13, verse 3 to 4, that it seduces people to follow. There's a tension between worshipping the true God and worshipping the power of empire, worshipping a kingdom that worked differently to the one God was calling them to. 
We see that the beast exercises violence against those Christians who refused to join the civil religion, who refused to bow down to it, to worship the image of the beast, we see in verses 15 to 17. It's a stark and powerful picture, isn't it, of the reality of those first century Christians who were facing the prospect of martyrdom. They would have known what this powerful enemy felt like in their own lives. They would have experienced this incredible evil. So this image that we see in the book of Revelation matches it perfectly. Then we see two other images that are used in conjunction with this symbol of the beast. It's interesting, sometimes in dreams and visions we see multiple symbols meaning the same thing. I think about the very famous story about Joseph's dreams. Joseph was given a prophetic picture about what his destiny in God was, that he would be a leader such that his family would bow to him. And that scene was depicted in two different ways, in two scenes and using two different types of symbols. Can you remember what they are? The first one is the sun, moon and stars bowing down to Joseph. And the second one was sheaves of wheat bowing down to Joseph. Two different symbols meaning the same thing. And we see the same thing operating here. We see three different symbols. We see the beast, Babylon, and the prostitute operating in the same way. All three of them represent Satan. But all three of them highlight different aspects of his nature. And I think that's why God uses symbols, why he uses metaphors. They show us different aspects and different ways of describing things. So let's have a look at, at how they do that. The first one is the symbol of Babylon. Now we know that Babylon was an actual city way back in the 6th century BC. It was the city that was the enemy of the nation of Israel. We know that the, the empire, the most powerful empire of that time took the city of Jerusalem and its people into captivity, took them off to, into exile and very much a symbol of a great city that acts as the enemy of the people of God. And in the same way, this city is also used to show how the rulership of this empire was acting in opposition to worship of God, to a kingdom that relied on following the lamb. The third symbol is a symbol of the prostitute. She's sitting on the back of a scarlet beast. Let me read from Revelation chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. It's not really a very pretty sight. It says this, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. She was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand and it was filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Revelation seventeen nineteen says, The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Again, we see that this symbol represents the Roman Empire. So why would God use a symbol of a drunken prostitute to depict 
this empire. Well, first of all, note that this picture is um, gaudy and, and it's repulsive. Here's a woman who's wealthy and she's highly adorned with beautiful jewels, but she's morally repugnant. She's unfaithful. She's known as a prostitute who fornicates, who's not faithful. She's impure. She blasphemes. She's named the source of evil. We've often seen this kind of imagery in the Bible And I think the people of the first century church would have been very familiar with it. This whole metaphor of relationship with God being like a marriage with a faithful husband and a faithful wife. But this is the exact opposite. This is a woman who's unfaithful. This is a woman who's betraying the covenant. This is a woman who's leading people astray. This is a woman who's operating with the wrong set of rules. She's also drunk with the blood of the Jesus followers. And we know, again, that the Roman Empire was persecuting God's people. And again, that's a very apt description for what the empire was doing. The next symbol that we come across, the bowls in Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. We see a number of them and we see them being poured out. The bowls represent God's judgment. They represent his justice as his weighed deeds in the scale. He's now bringing justice to those who had been persecuted and to those who had persecuted. So again, in this scene, we see Jesus depicted as the righteous judge. He's wearing a white robe with a golden sash. He's sitting on a great white throne, again, the symbol of judgment. It's a reminder that God's ways are just, And that God is ultimately the judge. And the way to escape judgment is to live differently from the ways of the world. Revelation 18.4 says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. When the bowls are poured out, there's all sorts of extreme geographic phenomena. There's flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, a severe earthquake, huge hailstones weighing 100 pounds, it says, blood rising as high as horses' bridles for 300 kilometres. A third of the sun was struck. The city splits into three parts and every island flees away. And here we see very symbolic language to really create emphasis about these pronouncements. We see very vivid use of hyperbole, this idea that that God's judgment is real and that it's strong and that it will be extensive. The next scene that we come across, we see the finale, if you like. There's been this war against the Lamb. There's been a battle in the heavenlies and we see the ultimate result of this battle, such an important part of the story in Revelation chapter 18. The first thing that we see is the fall of Babylon, that symbol of the great city. It says that the prosperity of the city is lost. All the wealth and the luxury and the splendour is gone. It's brought to ruin. The merchants are weeping over the loss. It's the demise of the empire, of its power, of its ability to defeat God's ways. God's saying, it's my way that gets the victory. It's my way that you should follow. 
Similarly, we also see the, the rather grisly end to the prostitute. It's devoured by the beast, made desolate and naked and burned up with fire in Revelation 18 verses 7 to 8. Let me read from Revelation 17, 14, the ultimate. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. See, the truth was they were facing a situation where the beast was waging war with the lamb. But the message of Revelation is that the lamb will triumph. Such a battle between two empires, isn't it? The good and bad, God's ways and man's ways, God's kingdom and man's kingdom. But the outcome, the result will be victory for the lamb and his followers. In other words, the way of the lamb, even though it's humble, even though it involves sacrifice, even though it looks like you're going to lose by following God's ways, it will ultimately overcome the way of the beast. Evil will be overcome with good. And this is a cause for enormous celebration. The ultimate part of the story we see now in Revelation chapter 19. The moment everyone's been waiting for. Let me read from verse 6 to 8 of Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The scene is a great wedding, the ultimate, one of the best celebrations in life that we could attend to. The coming together of two parties in unity, a celebration of those who have waited faithfully in the betrothal period. Again, this concept of a marriage relationship, this concept of faithfulness, of intimacy, of reunion. This is the reward for those who follow Jesus. They'll be reunited with their groom in a grand celebration and together they will reign. Also notice the second scene as a part of this. And Jesus is riding a white horse. It's a victory statement. He's wearing a robe that's been dipped in his own blood and he has a sword not in his hand but in his mouth. He's leading an army of people of righteousness and faithfulness and of truth. Symbols of victory, symbols of overcoming. The lamb has won. He's defeated the armies of the enemy by his self-sacrifice and by the power of his word. The beast has been captured. It's been destroyed and the dragon is put down. Then we come to one of the most beautiful visions in the book. And again, a second symbol for the climactic moment in the battle. Chapter 21 opens with a description of a new city. And notice how different it is to the city of Babylon. And watch how the symbolism functions. 
Let's read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Remember, that was a source seen as a source of evil. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's an incredibly beautiful symbol of the promise of hope that God was giving to these people who were suffering so greatly, who faced so little hope and who'd already seen brothers and sisters die a natural death. See, this city is the spiritual kingdom coming into all its fullness. It's a state of perfect harmony and peace without fear, death, crying or pain. It's not a political kingdom. It's not based on ethnicity, but it's a spiritual kingdom based on love, joy and peace, the kingdom that Jesus had come to bring. It's the dwelling place of God now together fully with his people. It includes all of God's perfected people, his church. And the entrance to this city, the entrance to this kingdom is through the blood of the Lamb. We also see that this city is symbolised again like a bride. Verse 9 to 11 says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, showing me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Again, this incredible... Symbolism shows us that God's people have have dressed as a bride. They've made themselves ready. They're beautiful. They're adorned with precious stones as a groom would give to a bride. And we see this symbol of perfection with all those numbers 3, 4 and 10 used to describe this city. The next symbol we come across is within this city. The central part of the city, of course, the temple. Can you see what it represents in this case? Verse 22 of chapter 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now remember what this would have meant to those first century hearers. Remember that the actual physical temple of Jerusalem had been destroyed. They'd lost it. This, this was an, inc- an 
absolute disaster for the Jewish people who understood that the temple was always the centre of worship and it was always where the presence of God dwelt amongst them. There would have been Jews in those seven churches and they would have been asking, well, where is the presence of God now? The answer given here is that there's no longer any temple. Why? Because there's no need for one. The Holy Spirit now lives in his kingdom and he resides with us as a spiritual temple where the presence of God dwells. Revelation chapter 15 verse 5 and 21 verse 22 talks about this. You see, God's people now carry the presence of God. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul talks about. And in this temple, there's no artificial lighting. Its gates are never shut. You don't have to visit the temple at the right opening times. What's more, any nation can enter, not just the Jews. It's also interesting to note when we read in Revelation 11 that when the temple is being measured, it no longer has the outer court of the Gentiles since the Gentiles have now been invited in. We know that Jesus spoke using this imagery of the temple when he was on the earth. He said that the temple would be destroyed, but in three days it would rise up again. We know that he wasn't talking about a physical temple. We know that he was talking about his own body that would rise up again. And when he left, he would leave that deposit of his spirit to be with us. Of course, the scene in Revelation, the ultimate climax is that the fullness of the Spirit now exists in the new Jerusalem, this new kingdom, in this new state that people, the people of God will find themselves in, that not just an experience of the Spirit here and there, but the fullness such that there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. Can you imagine what this message would have felt like to those people? as they were facing so much turmoil, so much persecution, so much fear, that great sense that they were going to be overcome by, by an evil empire. The last symbol we'll look at. It's a symbol of a restored Eden. Revelation chapter 22. It's kind of like a bookend to the Bible, if you like, because we see the Bible opening in the book of Genesis with the Garden of Eden. And we see what sin did and how man's rebellion caused the garden to deteriorate. The curse came. And of course, there's thorns and thistles. There's, there's trouble in paradise. And now what we see here at the end, this magnificent symbol of the garden being restored. It's the ultimate botanic gardens. Have a look at it. There's a river of life with crystal clear water. No bugs, no pollution. There are trees that bear fruit every single month. And these trees have leaves that you can use for healing. This is the ultimate paradise. This is beauty. This is peace. This is what God has promised his people. And this is how Revelation finishes. On such an amazing note, on the message of hope, of celebration symbolised by the wedding, by a new city, by a spiritual temple and by a restored garden. All of those symbols work together to show us 
this truth, to give us this message that God has hope, he has victory, he has reunion with him, joy, peace and beauty, and that ultimately that his kingdom will overcome, that no matter what it looks like on the earth, no matter what evil is prevailing, that God's ways are more powerful than the world's, than the enemy's, and that he will win at the end of the story. What a journey. Well, I truly believe that um, John didn't have all of these visions in one night because it would have been an incredibly exhausting night, I think. But um, thankfully, you know, in my experience, not every dream or vision from God is this long or this detailed. But I really hope that after going through so many of the symbols of Revelation, you've been able to work out what the key message that God wanted to give to his people were. Let's conclude the podcast today by summing them up in just a few very short points. Firstly, this message was a a message of comfort in the time of persecution. Remember how it started? Jesus was moving among the, the lampstands. He was answering the cry of his people who were suffering. God was saying, justice will be done. In the final outcome, wrongs will be made right and there will be vindication for those who are faithful. We also see that God gives a concrete strategy. He gives a pragmatic way for his people to respond as they're seeking wisdom, as they're saying to God, Lord, how do we respond to this? What do we do in this situation? He's saying, this is how you walk. This is how you respond. I've sent my son Jesus to show you what my kingdom is like. You've seen his example. Now understand that you need to live his example in the situation that you're facing, that in amongst this this spiritual battle that you're involved in, God's ways haven't changed. I want you to follow in his ways in the same way that he gave his life, that he was persecuted by a violent empire who sought to, to, to crucify him. He rose again and he did it because he had the authority to, because he had shown the ways of God by laying down his life. Even though the enemy was coming against him, he didn't rise up and fight according to the devil's ways. This was the same scene that Jesus faced on the cross that he's asking his people to follow. He's saying, follow the way of the Lamb. The next podcast, the final in our series, we're going to spend a little more time looking at the response of the seven churches. How did they respond to that? You know, in every revelation we have, there will always be some action to take. I found that when God speaks, he speaks for a purpose and he calls us to walk more closely with him. The final question we're going to look at, the fourth and fifth question, is to test the word. We're going to look at how would the seven churches test this revelation? How would they know what John had heard was from God? As we look at those two final questions in the next podcast, I truly believe it's going to help you to discern God dreams in your own life. Before we get to that, can I encourage you to grab your Bibles and spend some time just having a look at Revelation chapter 12 to 22 seeing how these images work, seeing how these symbolism work. Because I truly believe that as we look at the examples that God has given us, I, I very much see the Bible as a collection, if you like, of people's journals. 
as they've written down their God conversations. And we can learn so much of the patterning and the imagery that we see for our own lives. And of course, if you do have a dream, perhaps you've had one, particularly in this last series, and it's been of a symbolic nature, we'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear some of the God dreams that you're having. And please jump on our our blog on the website to share some of those thoughts. Or if you have any questions about what you've seen and you're not sure what it could mean, do please contact us at godconversations.com. Well, it's been a long one today and um, a very heavy one, lots of things in it. And I pray that you have gotten great benefit from it. Before we go, can I just encourage you, if you haven't had a bit of the groundwork to the way that God speaks in dreams, there's a couple of awesome resources at the store, at the website, a couple there that are foundational to how to hear God's voice in dreams, particularly one that's titled, Does God Speak in Dreams? We look at some of the God dreams in the Bible that we've been given to to understand how God speaks in this way. Well, thanks so much for listening and it's been awesome to have you on the podcast. If it's been helpful to you, why not share it through our social media share buttons at the website? We'd love to get the word out that God wants to speak to people in dreams and visions. And until next time, our prayer is that you'll be able to recognise the voice of God in your own life and then have the courage to follow it. Bye for now. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast by Tanya Harris. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. So post your comments on the blog page of godconversations.com or at facebook.com forward slash Tanya M. Harris. Help us to equip others to recognize God's voice by rating the series on iTunes. Remember, Jesus said we would know his voice. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation.